come then uh, again to the, the book of Proverbs uh, this evening and coming to, to think uh, of humility and perhaps in one day pride and humility is a bit much uh, for us. But here we are uh, looking at this other theme in the book of Proverbs and humility is a virtue which we all preach but we find it hard to practice. Everyone is content to hear about it and to speak about it. Ministers think congregations need to hear it. Congregations think that ministers need to hear it. So we're happy to listen to it, but put it into practice is something uh, that we all uh, struggle with. And it is a difficult concept for us to define and identify, perhaps because we see so many imperfect examples of humility around us. It's not altogether staring us in the face every day. And so perhaps because of that, we find it difficult to, to get a handle on it. What is this concept of humility? It's difficult for us to achieve. We struggle to do it. We wrestle with it at times. We fall short of it. And so it is rare among us. It's something that's perhaps intangible. It's rooted in our hearts. And that idea of being intangible and unseen comes with it the difficulty of articulating and defining and nailing down what is this biblical godly humility that we are thinking about. We cannot buy it in Orr's Bakery. We cannot take a slice of it from one of their fine cakes. Humility is difficult to define. It's hard to understand and identify. We can get some help, of course, from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme source of help for us here is humility incarnated. Philippians 2.8, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And in contemplating the life and ministry and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are studying humility. And this is a great point for us to begin with, that humility doesn't just belong to fallen humanity. It's not a, a defective idea or action. It doesn't come with, with things which are flawed like servility or, or meanness. Here is humility in its purity, in its acme of revelation and achievement in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we study him and all that he was and we learn about humility. The words used in the Bible perhaps will, will also help us in, in understanding something of humility. The common Hebrew word, it comes from a root meaning affliction. And we understand the correlation between humility and affliction because of our slowness to learn. There is often the necessity for affliction in our life to produce a measure of humility. It was for Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't it? The man who was lifted up with his incredible achievements and conquests and extensive kingdom, but in a moment put out to grass, his hair growing like the feathers of a bird, his nails like the claws of an animal, wet 
with the dew of heaven, the Bible says. And he himself says he was there until he learned to be humble. And we get the correlation between affliction and humility that sometimes is in our life or in the life of someone else. The Greek word comes from the word for ground. And again, we understand the concept that to be humble is to be lowly, is to be meek, is to be bent, is to be stooped in spirit. It's not lofty, it's not high, it's close to the ground, as John Bunyan says. A third source of understanding humility is the lives of the spirit-filled people of God. The Beatitudes of Jesus direct us in this way as, as they open up and as they begin. And, and Lloyd-Jones has, has wonderfully uh, identified and all preachers follow his analysis that it begins uh, with humility, the poor in spirit, the meek. And, and here's us entering the kingdom of God in this lowly place. And, and this is the mark of the Christian. And, and, and W.T. Shedd, he argues that humility can only be found in, in a Christian in its depth and in its essence and in its richness, as we come before God, as we feel our sinfulness, as we recognize our true position, both in his holiness and in the revelation of his love, we are humbled before God. And we see that humility in the life of congregational members in Newton Arts. Murray McShane expresses something of it in his comment, none but God knows what an abyss of corruption is in my heart. It is perfectly wonderful that ever God could bless such a minister. There's humility in one of God's servants being expressed. While Shed argues that it is found only in believers, he recognizes that hints of it can be found as a result of common grace in man. And one example of this is in a U.S. philosopher who was asked why he always traveled third class. And he replied, because there's no fourth class. There was an ounce of humility in his behavior, in his action. And so Spurgeon defines humility in a short phrase. It might not be that helpful to us. But it is to make a right estimate of oneself. Not too high, not too low. To make a right estimate of oneself. Some writers express a humility in a relation to others, loving their excellencies, encouraging their virtues, relieving their wants. Rejoicing in their prosperities, being compassionate to their distresses, receiving their friendship, overlooking their unkindnesses, forgiving their malice, being a servant of servants, condescending to the lowliest offices of the lowest of mankind. But they're emphasizing purely the, the human relation, but there's more to humility, isn't there? It's not just our expression and interaction with one another, being willing to become the servant of others. But what's driving that in the Christian life is our relationship before God, recognizing our position before the Almighty, that though we are sinful and unworthy, He has loved us in His grace and redeemed us in His Son. That humbles us. 
and enables us to behave with humility to one another. The necessity, secondly, of humility. This has been emphasized by writers, especially by the apostolic writers. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, be clothed with humility. Thomas Adam observes, and we would agree with this, he is the most lovely believer who is the most lowly believer. Someone who is clothed with humility has a beauty, a winsomeness, an attraction. <laughs> They're refreshing. We love to be in their presence. And Augustine, who, 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 who lived long ago, but what speaks often with such importance and relevance into our time when, when asked about the three main qualities within the Christian life, replied, as you probably well know, Number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. Oh, you might say, well, oh, Augustine, has he lost it? Did Jesus not say the greatest things is love? Love for God and love for our neighbor. But, but surely there is a correlation, an overlap, an interconnection between love and humility. That love for God, that love for our, our neighbor is expressed. In our humility before God and in our humility before one another. Attaining humility. Some writers argue that a sense of our creatureliness helps us to attain it. Remember who you are. One writer says humility comes from the constant sense of our own creatureliness. The fact that we are men and women made from the dust. And Shedd goes off describing this uh, kind of idea which would help us uh, to, to understand our humility. He talks about different things that we make. He says, take the tailor making the coat. You know, the coat comes from this finely twined cloth with great skill. The dye work is tremendous on it. it the quality of the material is, is refined and smooth and rich. And the coat is made by us from that fine material. But he says, we've been made from the dust of the ground. That sense of our creatureliness is to feed into our sense of humility. Our deficiencies then as men and women should also encourage us and direct us in this path of humility. What you lack, one writer says, and not what you have is the quickest path to humility. And all of us could draw up a long list of those things. It's great having you here, boys and girls. And, and out in Munich in Germany, uh, there were many orphans at a certain period in, in history. And orphanages were opened up uh, for these orphans. But in this particular orphanage within Munich in, in Germany... They would collect the children from the street and they would take them to the orphanage. But before their, their clothes were washed, before they were fed, they would pause for a, a short time 
and a skillful artist would draw them. That painting off them in their rags and malnutrition and poverty would be filed away until after their education and development and growth and readiness for society and the day they left the orphanage, they would be given that picture to remind them of where they were and to motivate them to go on in life and serve and work. And our deficiencies, our sinfulness, what we have done in the past, our failings in the present, are a feeder into our humility before God. But perhaps, and what should be the greatest motivator and prompter to holiness is the cross of Jesus. Coming before the cross, seeing the sufferings of Christ and and the sin of our hearts and lives which caused him to suffer, seeing the immensity of Jesus' love and him giving himself for us, and and those twin strains of of truth and doctrine should, should funnel into our lives and bring us low before the Lord. One writer contrasts the the impact of Medusa's head on all who looked into the eyes of Medusa's head. In Greek mythology, Medusa's head, if it was stared at, would turn the person looking at it to stone. This writer says the very opposite happens to us as we look at the love of Christ on the cross. Our hearts are melted and softened and humbled before the love and the grace of God. But Proverbs has another driver for us, an additional prompt to humility for us, as it describes associates of humility. It's wooing us in, it's enticing us, it's encouraging us to embrace this virtue of humility by the baggage which humility has. Be humble, Proverbs is saying, and you will have all these benefits, these accompanying blessings which belong to the humble. And we're thinking of these uh, four blessings, wisdom, honor, favor, riches, and life. Read with me, first of all then, in chapter 11, verse 2, and we do have the verses sorted out this evening. Uh, So, chapter 11 and verse 2, when pride comes, Then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And here's a driver for us, a motivation for us with the humble is wisdom. Here's an associate of humility that surely we desire. This word humble here, it's only used twice in the Old Testament. It's an unusual word for humble once here. And then famously in Micah chapter 6 verse 8, we walk humbly with our God. It means bowing, stooping. And it's demonstrated in us in relation to three parties. We're humble before men. The proud are antagonistic, demeaning, belittling indifferent to others 
but the lowly are respectful, they're courteous, they're loving to their fellow man. The attitude of the proud, this, this verse says, brings disgrace. But the attitude of the lowly expresses wisdom. We're lowly before one another. The lowly, when they look at themselves, are not lifted up, but they're brought low. One writer says that his grandfather said to him, you will never see anything worse than yourself. To be proud of ourselves is foolish, but the humble have wisdom. And we love self-effacing people. We love to say of people, you would never know that about them. You would never think that about them. They're so down to earth. They seem so ordinary. This humility is before God, before the word of God. We receive its commands. We adjust our life. We repent of our failings. With the humble is wisdom. So are we lowly men and women? Are we lowly before one another? Do we esteem one another better than ourselves? Part of the ability to do that is understanding ourselves and the, the corruption and fallenness of our own heart. We only see one another on the outside. We hear their words. We watch their demeanor. But we know ourselves on the inside. And that self-knowledge helps us to think that you're better than me. Are we lowly before ourselves? Not thinking too highly of ourselves. Are we humble before God, before the word of God? With the humble is wisdom. Many Oxbridge graduates are not truly wise because many are not truly humble before men, before self, before God, with humble wisdom. In November 2022, there were 5,175 cases registered against MPs in the UK. No doubt some are from gold diggers, others driven by envy, but it's still a large number. It's power gone to their head. With the humble is wisdom. Benjamin Palmer's father was a minister. And he advised his son as he was training to be a minister to learn about life in the cottages of the godly poor in the congregation. Because with the humble is wisdom. Secondly, honor. Read with me chapter 18 and verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The second associate of wisdom is honor. God will ensure that the humble in his kingdom will be honored. Richard Cecil puts it like this. God will be careful enough to get us applause. This proverb doesn't mean that the humble cease to be humble when they are honored. That she moves from the school of humility into the university of honor. But the humility which we demonstrate before the honor is carried on into the position of honor. Joseph was humble in prison, wasn't he? 
And he maintained that humility in his exalted position. Moses and David were humble as shepherds, but when they were exalted, they maintained that humility in that exalted position. This proverb is illustrated and assured to us in the life of the Lord Jesus. In his state of humiliation, he was despised and rejected by men. But he is now exalted at the right hand of God. Before humility comes honor. Before honor comes humility. This is the principle that he gave us. Matthew 23 verse 12. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Some were unable to handle the honor. Some lost the humility when they were exalted. King Saul was humble at the very beginning of his reign. You remember he was hiding among the bags and couldn't be found when Samuel wanted to anoint him. But after he was exalted, he became proud. But that humility which characterizes us before the honor is to be retained in the elevated position. Puritans said that it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. And what will steady that hand of fullness and honor and exaltation and promotion is humility. Humility comes before honor, but is carried on into that position of exaltation. As we follow Christ, as his disciples, as his servants, we have this assurance that though we may serve in humble and unappreciated and unseen ways and tasks now, that time of rest and honor and glory will come. The Apostle Paul reflects this in his life, in his closing lines, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. There was little honor in fighting the fight. It was all blood and sweat and tears, writing those letters, being rebuffed, being persecuted, being unloved by congregations, fighting the fight, running the race. There was little honor for the apostle. But then he goes on. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Humility for Paul, for us, comes before honor. Dr. Guthrie, in, in one of his sermons uh, on this idea, he, he, he helps us here as he talks about great edifices, tall towers, lofted spires. And he looks at these magnificent buildings protruding up into the sky. And he says of, of each one of them that is well built, it has a deep foundation. And he links these two things of the, the honor, the, the elevation, and the humility that underpins and steadies that exalted edifice. And so a second associate of humility is honor. Thirdly, favor. 
Read with me chapter 3, verse 34. Toward the scorners, God is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. And here is another associate and motivation for us to embrace humility, to seek humility, to pray for humility, to desire humility in ourselves and in our congregation. To the humble, God gives favor. And if any of these associates tempt us, induce us, entice us, motivate us to be humble, it must be this one. We want the favor of God in our life, in our family, in our congregation. And here's the way to it. To the humble, he gives favor. The contrast is here with the the scorners. The person who judges himself to be a cut above the rest. Literally the verse reads, God outscorns the scorners, but shows favor to the lowly. The scorner of others and of God will himself be scorned. God will outscorn the scorner. But to the humble, he gives favor. To the one who's bent, to the one who's bowed, to the one who bows himself before God and before others in service. This verse, of course, is quoted twice in the New Testament. Once by James in chapter 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And by Peter in the same words in chapter 5, verse 5, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But to the humble, to the poor, to the bent, to the bowed, he gives favor. And what a a proverb for us. Are we financially poor, bowed, low? Let us look to the fulfillment of this promise in our life Perhaps we have little funds for clothes, for food, for furnishings. And as we walk around Asda or Tesco, our, our face is down, our chin is low, we're bent over, we're lowly, our eyes are on the footpath. Here's a promise for the lowly, financially. To the lowly, he gives favor. He commands his people to be generous to the poor. Or in his providence, he provides for them. In the 17th century in Scotland, one of the Covenanters was hiding in a hay barn. The dragoons were were after him, searching here, searching there. From time to time, he could hear their voices outside. And he was there for days. But every day, a hen came and laid an egg within his reach. To the lowly, he gives favor. Perhaps you're socially poor, low, bow down. You're being oppressed at home and work by the strong, by the bully. God favors such by commanding and providing care and protection for us. Like Boaz, caring for the immigrant, protecting Ruth, providing for her. To the humble, he gives favor. Perhaps we're spiritually poor. We recognize that we have nothing to offer God. But he notices us. He sees our lowliness, our bow down, our bentness. And he cares for us. Like Cornelius praying to God. God sent him the preacher, Peter. Like the centurion pleading with Jesus to heal his servant. But unworthy that Jesus would come into his house. 
to the lowly. He gives favor. What an incentive for us to be humble before God. Things that please our spouse, please our friends, please our boss is often a motivation for us, even when that thing is hard. To empty the dishwasher, to make the coffee, to stock the fridge. We do this because it delights others. How much more so what pleases God to the humble. He gives favor. And lastly, the the fourth associate is riches in life. Read this wonderful proverb with me, chapter 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You may wonder about this claim, what a a proverb this is, what a claim this is. And, And you may wonder because there are many humble people that you know who are financially poor and have lived a hard life. So we're to understand this proverb in a deeper sense, a fuller sense, a richer sense, a better sense than the financial and the ordinary. We're to understand it in a spiritual way. The humility here is is not a, a common humility, an ordinary humility, an admirable humility, but a spiritual humility. See how it's tied in our verse to the fear of the Lord. So humility before God, not the embarrassment of Saul hiding in the bags, not the the Absalom, uh, a false humility before the people of Israel listening to their complaints and needs, not the temporary humility that Ahab showed in his life, but that deep humility of Isaiah, of Job, who feared the Lord, who bowed down before his glory. What promises are here? Riches, honor, and life. Riches, what riches we have as we humble ourselves before God. Not in a despairing way or a hopeless way, but in a true way, a real way. Trusting him, loving him, fearing him, serving him. The riches of fellowship with God's people. There's a wonderful example of it in the, a, a rare example, an unusual example perhaps in, in the life of Bengel, the, the very gifted commentator. He, he was very ill at one point, staying at the, the university where he taught. And, and he, he sent his servant to, to bring a student that he taught in his class. And, and this student came to his, his, his sick bedside and, and Bengel asked him for some comfort. And the student said, I'm only, I'm only a student. And Bengal reproved him and said, you're training for the ministry. How can you not give me some comfort in my time of need? And so the, the student blurred out, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And Bengal said, that's the very word I need. It was a moment of rich fellowship. One believer ministering to another believer, humble and believing the word of God. This is the type of riches that's promised to those who are humble in this way. The riches of understanding and delighting in God's word. 
the riches of godly character, beholding it, delighting in it, benefiting from it. There's a well-known saying in relation to to godly humility, isn't it? That the, the ears of the barley, which are most ripe, always hang the lowest. The upright barley is green, it's young, it's growing. But the ripe barley is bent over. And so it is within congregations, the humble, the pious, the godly, are those who who adopt and embrace this virtue of humility. And how rich that is to breathe that, to witness that, to rub shoulders with that week by week as we come in worship. Here are the riches that belong to those who are humble before God. The honor is not always experienced in this life. We don't all be promoted like Joseph or like Daniel, will we? Stephen was stoned, James was beheaded. But there will be honor. An honor that will come after and with the humility. The life is spiritual. The life of the humble before God is eternal. And so we're encouraged by Proverbs to make humility our friend. And in making humility our friend, we will be introduced to her circle of friends who are wisdom and honor and favor and riches and life. In an interview, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he described his move uh, from a, a congregation in the north of Scotland out to, to Westminster. Someone had heard about him uh, in Scotland and his gifts, and, and a, a member of the faculty was, was summoned to, to go to Scotland and not come back to, to Westminster without securing the services of Sinclair Ferguson. And then he says that, that he left this remote place in Scotland and, and he went to America. And he remembers sitting down for coffee with this illustrious faculty. And he says, I never said a word. He just drunk in the wisdom that was there the associates that he now had. And this is what's been promised us here. As we embrace humility, as we pray for him, as we seek it, as we see the Spirit working it in others and and we trust some in ourselves, we will know wisdom and honor and the favor of God and riches and life. And among those four associates, sitting head and shoulders above them all, we'll find Jesus, the incarnation and perfection of wisdom and honor and riches.